Well, good morning, Milton Bible Church. So excited to have you joining with us this morning as we continue on in our series in Mark 8 and Mark 9. And I'm just really, really excited about what God has for us this morning. And as I was preparing, it reminded me of this time when a student who will remain nameless came to me one time during a youth service and he said, Jordan, I need the keys to your car. And I'm like, what do you mean you need the keys to my car? And so he said, I left my hoodie or I left my sweater in your car. He said, may I have your keys? And now because I trust this gentleman a lot, this, this teenager, uh, I said, you know what? I know he's not going to like go crazy and go joyriding or whatever. Uh, and so I gave him my keys and he went out to get his item from my car. Now, what was interesting about it is he came back in very, very quickly. He came back in and he said, Jordan, um, I'm a little confused. How do I open your car? <laughs> and I said, well, with the key. And he said, yeah, but there's no fob on the key. And I'm like, well, you use the key to open the door. He said, yeah, but there's no button. There's no unlock button. You don't have a fob. And I, it was funny because no matter how much I was trying to explain to him that car doors have this thing called, you know, a lock that you put your key into and unlock, he just couldn't grasp it. And then finally the lights came on and sure enough, he realized what he was talking about. But have you ever been like that where maybe no matter how many times something's been explained to you, you just don't pick up what someone's laying down? Um, it's funny, looking at this chapter of Mark, chapters 8 and 9, there's a couple times where Jesus is trying to tell the, his disciples who he is and what he's all about, but they're just not picking up what he's laying down. They're, they're just not catching what he's saying. And so just as a quick recap, I think it's important for us to go through a few things. Up until this point, Jesus had healed a blind man. He had spit into some mud and put it on his eyes, which is super weird. And the blind man said, you know what, I see people, but they're moving like they're trees. And so Jesus had to do this again and kind of touch him a second time to heal them. And then it says, after that, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and the disciples are chatting, and he, Jesus goes, hey, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're, you know, you're, some people say you're John the Baptist, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And they say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Messiah. So I can imagine at this point, Jesus is like, finally, they, they've got it. We're getting somewhere. You understand. And then later on, Jesus continues to say that not only is he the Messiah, but that the Messiah must suffer and die. <laughs> now, if you know anything about what they were looking for and what they were hoping for in the Messiah, they really did not want to hear this idea of their Messiah, their coming king, dying. And in fact, there's this one guy named Peter, and he's a bit of a hothead. He's a bit of this character that, you know, would sometimes speak before he thought and act, a little impulsive. He kind of takes Jesus aside, it says, and he rebukes him. Kind of like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And it says, Jesus said to him, like, get behind me, Satan. It's like, your thinking is not of this world. You're, you're, thinking, you're, you're thinking of this world, rather. You're not thinking in heavenly ways. You're thinking in, in worldly ways. It's like, get behind me, Satan. And then it says, a little later, Jesus says, there are people here in this moment, as he's talking to a crowd, and he says, there, there are people here who will not die before seeing the kingdom of God come in great power. It's like, wow, that's quite the sentence. It's like, there's people here that are going to see something great. And then it says, six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up to this mountain, and here's what it says. It's, it's really cool. Let's read it. It's going to be Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah, Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us take three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so Jesus takes his friends. They go up on this mountain, and, and this crazy thing happens, this transfiguration where Jesus' white uh, clothing becomes radiant white and bright. He begins shining, and then Moses and Elijah kind of come out of nowhere, and they're there, and they're talking with Jesus. And Peter, the same guy that rebuked him, right, the one that was a little bit, you know, kind of spoke before he thought, a little impulsive at times, he, he actually says something funny. He's like, you know what, why don't we just set up some tents? It's like, you know, you know that awkward moment when you don't really know what to say? He's just kind of like, why don't we just stay a while? Take off your, you know, settle in. Let's make some tents. Let's establish perhaps the kingdom of God right here, right now in this moment. And it says that shortly after that, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Listen to him. I want you to think about, if you were there, how would you have reacted? Think about it for a moment. Like, you've, you're seeing something you've never seen before. This is, this is wild. It, it, would, it would be next level. And the passage we're jumping into today is what happens just after that in verse, verse 9. So we're in Mark 9, chapter 9, and here's what happens next. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. <laughs> so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah must, first, must come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So this big event happens, and you can imagine they're stunned, they're shocked, they're shook. And they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus says to them, look, <laughs> don't tell anyone what you just saw until after I rise from the dead. Now think about drinking from a fire hydrant, right? Like, not only did they just see this, but now they've been instructed, don't you, don't you tell anyone. Like, you just saw something you've never seen before, and now you are to go and not say anything to anyone. But it says, because of all this, they kind of kept it to themselves, and, and now Jesus is talking about this rising from the dead thing again. See, the disciples could not comprehend. They could not understand. They could not comprehend in any way how their Messiah would be talking about dying. It didn't make sense. And so they began to question what that meant. You know, as I began to talk about this, as I began to think about this, and as I began to study this, I thought, well, maybe they just couldn't, maybe they just couldn't get it because resurrection wasn't really a thing back then. Like, maybe, maybe people just didn't talk about resurrection much, or maybe they didn't know what that was. So the idea of dying and resurrecting just seemed like some crazy thing. I mean, nowadays we've got television shows, and we're on the other side of the cross, and we're on the other side of the resurrection, so we, we understand these things. But that's not true. In fact, the disciples would have known about resurrection. In, in, in their scriptures, in the book of Daniel, they looked forward to this resurrection from the dead. And also, they saw Jesus rise people from the dead. So when it comes to the idea of resurrecting, it wouldn't have been that foreign to them. The hard part of all this was the idea that their, their Messiah would die. And why was this so hard? Why, is, why was this so difficult? I think one of the reasons it was so difficult for the disciples 
was because it is very difficult. It's very difficult to picture a God outside of your own preference. I want to say that again. It's very difficult to picture a God outside of your own preference. I mean, think about it. How does it make you feel to know that the God you picture, the God that you want, might not be exactly like you want him to be? Or that culture says he should be. I mean, you know, it's like, if I were to make a God, I want him to be nice, but I want him to be strong. I want, I want them to be, I want them to be politically correct, but I want them to also crush those who do injustice. They had a vision of what they wanted their Messiah to be. And it was this king. It was a political leader. It was a military leader. Someone who would be loved and welcomed. Not someone that would be despised and broken. Someone who would rule. See, they pictured and they saw a, a conquering king, not a suffering servant. See, so oftentimes we want to make God in our image. And the truth is this, is that we don't get to tell Jesus how to be Jesus. We don't get to tell God how to be God. We don't get to define who God is. We don't get to define who Jesus is. Rather, he tells us who he is. I mean, if you look at Peter, he tried to take a moment. He took Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, I know you're saying you're the Messiah and you're going to die, but I'm, gonna, you know, I'm just going to rebuke that for a moment. I'm just going to you know, tell you that you're wrong. How did that work out for him in the last chapter? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. See, God defines who he is. We learn about who God is. We learn about who Jesus is through Scripture. We learn about God through the person of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We cannot separate the parts of Jesus we like from the parts of Jesus we don't like. He defines himself. And for the disciples, he defined himself as one who would, who would die and they panicked. How could this be? But Jesus began talking about dying and dying soon. I mean, he said, look, I don't want you to tell anybody about what you just saw. Well, just, you can, but just after I die and rise again. It's like, wait a second. You mean you're going to die and rise again, like, fairly soon? They pictured themselves reigning with Jesus, not dying with him. And seemingly, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what Jesus said about himself. They just couldn't get it. They believed this other narrative. And my question to you right now, my question to you at home is this. Who defines Jesus for you? Where do you get your information about who Jesus was and is? Is Jesus just a conglomerate of all the best qualities you can think of in a person or in a, or in a, in a, in a God? Why do you believe the things you do about Jesus? You know, Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would say that's the same. Whatever you think about when you think about God, what you believe about him to be true, changes everything about the way you should live. My prayer is that as a church, we would be informed about Jesus, by Jesus, and his word. See, I believe right now, in my generation and others, there's this temptation to take our worldview and to read scripture in light of it. So it's like, you know what, I'm going to take culture, I'm going to take a little bit of this, I'm going to take a little bit of that, I'm going to take a little bit of this, and I'm going to put it on my, uh, on my eyes as a worldview, and I'm going to read my scripture. I'm going to read my scripture through the lens of culture. And, I, and I'm going to take culture, and I'm going to read who I want Jesus to be into the word. Instead of taking God's word and reading it into the world. That's what 
oftentimes we need to do is we need to take God's word, we need to take his scripture, we need to take who Jesus is and view the world through that lens. I mean, as a practical example, we don't like to talk about Jesus as judge. But yet the scriptures are clear in Jesus being one day coming to judge the world. Now let's continue on in our story as I get back to Mark 9. We're going to continue on in chapter 9, verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so there's some interesting things happening here. It's, it's, it's really unique. Where, where the disciples, are, they're, they're pondering these things and they go, you know, Jesus, doesn't the scripture say that Elijah must come first? And it's just interesting that thing that's happening is they're referring to this prophecy in the book of Malachi who, that said that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come back to earth. And so they're trying to put two and two together and they're thinking, well, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, we just saw you do this cool thing. Shouldn't Elijah have come before you? But Elijah, did he just come or was that a vision? And so they're trying to put all this together and Jesus answers them with this. He says, Elijah does come first. You're right. Yeah, he does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. He says, you're right. <laughs> the scriptures do say that Elijah does come first before the Messiah. But the scriptures also say that the Son of Man, which basically means the Messiah, would suffer many things. Elijah came and they killed him. And so there's this thing going on here. There's this, a lot of verbiage and words and kind of some questions here that we need to ask. But basically what he's doing, he's trying to build a case for them to understand something. And they say, Jesus, you know, Elijah is supposed to come first before the Messiah, right? And Jesus goes, yeah, he is. And the scriptures also say that the Messiah will, will die. And guess what? Elijah did come first and they killed him. And it kind of leaves this open-ended conversation for them to go, oh, what happened to Elijah is going to happen to the Messiah. Now, you're probably wondering, well, Jordan, where did Elijah come back? What's going on here? Did Elijah come back before Jesus? And there's something, this is the importance of Bible study. This is the importance of tuning in on a Sunday morning. This is the importance of getting a good study Bible as well. It's because just reading this passage in and of itself, you wouldn't pick up on things that are packed in here. And so take, for example, if you look in Matthew, in Matthew it says this, talking about the Old Testament, it says, all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. And so John the Baptist, yeah, John the Baptist is actually the fulfillment of this prophecy about Elijah. They said, look, Elijah will come before the Messiah. And in some way, shape, or form, John the Baptist served that role. And if you're not convinced, it's, you might be interested to find out that in the Old Testament, Elijah was described this way, saying that he had a garment of hair. <laughs> a garment of hair, which is kind of weird. And he had a leather belt around his waist. Now, get this, that was in the Old Testament hundreds of years ago. Uh, in the New Testament, John the Baptist is described this way. <laughs> in Matthew 3, I believe, John wore a garment of camel's hair. 
and a leather belt around his waist. Like, isn't it just interesting that the, the Elijah of the Old Testament was described to wear certain clothes, and John of the New Testament wore the same type of clothes. And it's interesting because in some of these Gospels, people ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And, I, and, and another portion in Luke, it says that John the Baptist came in Elijah's spirit and power. And so when Jesus says, look, yeah, you're right, the Bible does say that Elijah will come first. Elijah will come first. He says he can, he's already come. And I'm sure the disciples are going, what is he talking about? Oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. And just as we know about John the Baptist, that he was killed, also the Messiah must die. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the disciples were quick to ask Jesus about certain scriptures that supported or kind of supported their understanding of the Messiah. It's like, Jesus, wait a minute. Doesn't the scripture say that Elijah must come first? but they weren't aware of the many scriptures, or they never brought up uh, the many scriptures that talk about Jesus or the Messiah's suffering. And that Jesus says, actually, yes, and the scriptures also say, the scriptures also say that the Messiah must suffer. Why do you think it is that they weren't as quick to draw on those verses? I mean, maybe Jesus is referring to the scriptures in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a whole portion of scripture, a prophecy about Jesus, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it says this, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. <laughs> he would be a man of sorrows. He, he, he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, it says was chastisement that brought us peace. It's by his wounds we are healed. And it says that we're like sheep who've gone astray. We've turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this servant, this suffering servant, the iniquity of him, of us all. And like a lamb to the slaughter, it was the will of the Lord to, to crush him. He poured out his soul to death and bore the sin of many. I mean, I want you to think about this just for a moment. Think about this just for a moment, how the scriptures are full of the, that one day the Messiah would have to suffer. This is our Savior. This is, this is our Jesus. Let's not miss it. See, the death and resurrection is at the center of the gospel. Before Jesus died, this is what's amazing about this. Before Jesus died and resurrected, especially the dying piece, the, the disciples could not comprehend how their Messiah could one day die. But once Jesus died and rose again, it was the most important part of their message. Like, Paul says, look, I'm going to just preach Christ and Christ crucified. Everything they talked about pointed back to this moment that there was this man named Jesus who, who was fully God, came down to earth, lived a sin, sinless life, and he died a death on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. See, while it was the hardest to understand before he died, it was their greatest compulsion and message after he rose again. At the center of all we do, at the center of church online, at the center of Milton Bible Church, is this truth. Is this truth that Jesus died and rose again. You know, Jewish followers pictured a king who would overthrow and reign over this Roman government oppression, and I wonder if the disciples, if we, if, we were in, if we were the disciples, if Jesus was walking the earth now, what Messiah would we plan? What Messiah would we plan for, for our time? I mean, would we want a Messiah that's going to fix the economic deficit? 
Would we want someone who's going to fix all social justice issues? Would we just want a Messiah that's going to give me peace when I'm nervous? Would we want someone who's gracious towards my sin, but harsh on the sins I don't agree with? See, here's the truth. Jesus as Messiah came to die for our sin. He's not like just a genie in a bottle. It's like, well, we just pray and we get what we want from him. In fact, if you look at most of our songs, a lot of our songs don't really talk about the suffering servant. The fact that our Messiah came first to deal with our sin issue and how in love offered himself as a sacrifice. And so my challenge to us as a church is, is really this, to ensure that our message that we share is not just some that's nice to the ears of those who listen, but we, we say it for what it is, that Jesus came, he died, and he rose again, and he defeated death. You know, I can remember when I was a teenager, and I invited some friends out to my youth group, and I asked them what they thought, and you know, they loved it, and they said, but you know, Jordan, you didn't tell us the truth. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, well, you told us, you know, come and there'll be pizza and there'll be, you know, some games and there'll be some music and, you know, those types of things. But you didn't tell us that really what you were passionate about was God and that there'd be a message about this man who died and rose again. And they said, actually, if you were just honest with us, that probably would have attracted us much more. Now, not everyone's going to have that story, but I think sometimes it's easy I think sometimes it's easy to just try and and, and sometimes change our message, change our view of Jesus to be something that's a little bit more therapeutic. (laughs) But why is it so important that our message of who, who Jesus is, why is it so important we have a crystal clear vision on Jesus' main mission? What is it? It makes a huge difference in every area of our spiritual walk. I mean, it makes a difference in our suffering as it gives us hope for one day of a resurrection of hope without death, without pain. It makes a difference in our giving as we know that Jesus gave the ultimate price. Jesus gave the ultimate price so now we can give freely. It makes a difference in our esteem and how we view ourselves because we know that we were so valuable to God that he loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us. It it makes a difference in our worship because we now respond in gratitude for what Jesus has done rather than responding in a way where we might get something in return. See, who you understand Jesus to be will determine really who you will be. If you believe Jesus is soft on sin, I believe it's easier to live a life of sinfulness. If you believe Jesus is not very loving, you will live a life that's very unfortunate and very downtrodden. If you believe Jesus is not very gracious, you will leave a life of of, of legalism. See, who you understand Jesus to be will determine really who you will be. How will you follow him? It'll determine how you train your kids in the things of God. You know, Frederick Nietzsche (laughs) was (laughs) no—he's the one who penned the term, God is dead. But he also penned this question one time. He said, Why is it the Christians of my day live like they don't believe in the resurrection? Why do the Christians of my day kind of look, I think is what it says, why do the Christians of my day look like they don't believe in the resurrection? My prayer for Milton Bible Church is this, that we would not just look at Jesus as some like, you know, genie in a bottle. We would not look at it as just a teacher that gives us, you know, five ways to live. But we would have this this understanding of why he came to earth. 
And so my challenge to you over the next few days is this, is this question, what do you believe about Jesus? And why do you believe that? What informs that? And here's the final question. Do you need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ? Do you need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ? And so my prayer is this, as we're going to come to a close, is I pray that you would dive into who Jesus is. You know, we don't find out who Jesus is primarily by, we don't find out who Jesus is primarily by just listening and hoping. We, we find out who Jesus is by who he says that he is. Find out by the example of him in Scripture. And I think there's never been a time, possibly, well, there has, but now is a really good time for the church to be sure of who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of Jesus that you gave to us. And God, we know that the gospel, yes, it transforms lives, but it's good news. It's news about Jesus dying and rising again. God, I pray we would not get the gospel twisted. We would not think it's some self-improvement thing or a way to live better or just to whet our spiritual appetite. God, I pray that we would know that Jesus was real and lived and he came to fix the world's greatest issue, which is sin. And he gave the world's greatest need, which is salvation through Jesus. And so God, would you give us a fresh revelation of who Jesus is? We need it desperately today in our lives, in our homes, in our families. Would you reveal us, reveal to us again, your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for watching. We pray that you are blessed this week by God's word. And hey, why don't you share the good news of Jesus with someone this week, we pray. Have a good week, guys.